appreciate the song that Amy sang because it's one that I needed to hear also. That reminder to be thankful in all things for God and what He has done. I want to encourage you to open your Bibles to the Gospel of John. John 13 verses 21 through 30 will be our text this morning. John chapter 13 verses 21 through 30. The next few chapters deal with teaching that Jesus did the night before he was arrested. But before he begins talking about the love we have for one another and the gift of the Spirit, and before he begins praying for his children, there's an act that takes place, an act that is both dubious and evil. Let's hear and read of this act. John chapter 13, verses 21 through 30. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table close to Jesus. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought, because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So, after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. Would you pray with me now? Oh Lord, give us ears to hear you this morning. We ask you, O Lord, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would search our hearts. Your word is truth. The writer of Hebrews tells us that it's like a sharp two-edged sword dividing even the bone from the marrow. So Father, this morning I ask that you would work within us accomplish your purpose and father I pray that rather than fighting against you we would humbly accept your truth and your work and give glory to Jesus for it is in his name that we pray amen all throughout history there has been a high level of infamy for those that are considered traitors for example from the years 1866 to 1882, Jesse James and his brother Frank and their gang robbed 
banks and railroads, trains, all across the Midwest. Yet today, even today, the name of Robert Ford is held with greater derision and disrespect than even that of Jesse James. The reason is this. Robert Ford and his brother had both been members of James' gang. But when the reward was given and amped up to $10,000 for Jesse James, either dead or alive, Robert Ford couldn't resist it. So on April 3rd of 1882, Robert Ford shot Jesse James in the back, killing him. The irony is, is that Ford thought this would give him a level of fame, that he would become known as the man who eventually killed Jesse James. But it was the opposite that happened. He became a hunted man and was eventually shot by another person who wanted to kill such a coward. Such is the lot of traitors. Dante in his great poem, The Inferno, draws a picture of this imagery, this thing that awaits traitors. The Inferno is really, it's about a journey through hell that the Greek poet or the Roman poet Virgil takes. And you have these coincentric circles that get worse every step along the way until you get to the very center of hell. The center of hell is reserved for traitors. Dante describes the very center of hell as being occupied by only three people other than Satan himself. Only three other than Satan. Brutus and Cassius, who betrayed and murdered Caesar. And Judas. Judas is recognized as the archetype of the traitor. In many ways, what Judas did is very unique and can't be repeated. The reason I say that is because the word for betrayal that you read in verse 21 where Jesus said, one of you will betray me, that word literally means to hand over. It's unique. The action of Judas is unique because Judas physically handed over Jesus to his enemies. That's something you and I cannot do. So in that way, what Judas did is unique. That doesn't mean, however, that you and I cannot be guilty of either betraying or denying Jesus. You see, denying and betraying Jesus are really first cousins. They're along the same continuum. Denial may be spontaneous, as it was with Peter when asked, Do you know him? Aren't you one of his followers? And Peter denies Jesus, saying, No, I'm not. Betrayal tends to be more premeditated. When one denies Jesus, there's still a desire to have a relationship with Jesus. A moment of weakness may cause us to falter, but we still want to be associated with Christ. But betrayal means the relationship is permanently severed. Denial recognizes belief. Betrayal has no belief in Jesus. With denial, no harm for Jesus or the cause of the church is meant. But with betrayal, harm is brought. So while we may not be guilty of actually handing Jesus over physically, there are times in every temptation where we may deny or at worst betray that we even know who Jesus is. And while the difference between denial and betrayal may be one of degree, both of them bring pain. 
Verse 21 brings this pain to the forefront. After Jesus had given this incredible example of washing one another's feet, and as He encourages the disciples to wash one another's feet, to serve one another, we gain insight into the heart of Jesus. And His heart is troubled. His spirit is unsettled. It's disturbed. It's anxious. Why? We're told very clearly, as Jesus says, one of you will betray me. The language is emphatic and strong. There's no equivocation here. The language is not filled with a may betray me or might betray me, but it's a declarative statement. One of you will betray me. It's not the first time Jesus had spoken of this. Earlier in John 6, as He's teaching the twelve, Jesus says, Have I not chosen twelve of you, yet one of you is the devil? Even on this same night, Jesus had said to Peter, You are clean. Speaking of all the disciples, you're clean. But not all of you. Jesus feels the pain of being hurt and betrayed by one that he loves. I promise you, I've not been on a kick of reading William Shakespeare, but just like last week when I was reminded of Macbeth and the issue of guilt, even here in dealing with betrayal, I'm reminded of Shakespeare's work, Julius Caesar. In that moment when Caesar has been betrayed and the mob of senators is coming upon him, stabbing him to murder him, to remove him from power, and as Caesar is dying, he falls down at the feet of one of the conspirators and he looks up to see none other than his best friend, Brutus, holding a knife. And he says, et tu, Brute, you too, Brutus. The words drip with the pain that Jesus is experiencing here. I don't have to describe the intensity of that pain. If you've ever been betrayed by one that you've loved, if you've ever felt that heartbreak of a friend that turns against you, or that moment when marriage vows are broken, you know that this pain is intense and it is in deep, deep standing in our hearts. There's a temptation in the midst of that pain that would cause us to say, no one understands this, no one cares, no one can really understand the depths of the hurt that I'm experiencing at that moment. I want you to be reminded of verse 21 that Jesus, God Himself, is troubled in spirit and knows the betrayal that comes, the pain that comes from betrayal. The issue becomes, what will we do at that moment? You see, when we are betrayed, there is a temptation to protect ourselves by withdrawing. By saying, this person that I have loved has hurt me. I don't want to be hurt like that again. So we build a wall around our hearts, a hard wall that prevents any pain from getting in. But here's the problem with that. It also prevents joy from getting in. We may try to shield ourselves from the pain that others may cause us, but in doing so, we also block the happiness that can come from relationships. Notice Jesus' response here is not to seek vengeance. Even though he could have stopped Judas, he doesn't. You know what Jesus does? He trusts God. I know that's hard. 
But in our pain, we must call out to the Lord. We must learn to lament and say, Father, you are just. So rather than seeking vengeance on that one who has hurt us, we trust them to God and believe me on the day of judgment, one who has betrayed a fellow believer, one who has spoken lies, one who has harmed others, will give an account to God. And that day will be far more terrible than anything you and I could ever try to do to another person. You see, that's what enables us to love them, to pray for them. To know that they will ultimately answer to God because that's exactly what Jesus did. And Jesus knew that he would be betrayed. But you and I often don't have a clue. The disciples didn't. They didn't have a clue as to who would betray Jesus or how it would happen. Notice in verse 22, they look at each other. Who's he talking about? One of the other gospels records that each of them starts saying, Lord, is it I? Isn't it interesting? They never suspected Judas. Never. They never looked around and said, I know it's Judas. I know it is. I've had my eye on him. In fact, they wouldn't have suspected Judas. He held a place of honor among them. It's interesting there's such detail given of how they are seated because this explains why they didn't suspect Judas. If you look at verse 23 and 24, one of the disciples whom Jesus loved, we don't know who that is. Tradition says that it's John. Others believe that it may actually be Lazarus. This disciple's not identified other than it's one whom Jesus loved. But notice he's reclining at table. Now, reclining at table was saved for special occasions such as the Passover. They would literally recline around tables, small tables that were set up. Their head would be near the table. They would be on their left side. Their left arm would be propped up so they could reach over and eat. The idea was to symbolize this is a time of, of repose and relaxation. It's not a normal day. You're relaxing. So notice this disciple is reclining at table. He's on his left side. And notice verse 25. That disciple, after Peter motions to him, find out who it is, leans back against Jesus. That means that disciple had to be on this side of Jesus. His, his back was to Jesus, so he leans back. Now the reason that's important is because of what happens next. We know that this disciple, say, is on the left side or right side of Jesus, however you want to envision it. So Jesus says, the one to whom I give a morsel of bread when I have dipped it is the one. That means whomever's going to betray Jesus has to be close enough for Jesus to hand him bread. Every indication is this, that Judas was right next to Jesus. So that all Jesus had to do was to dip the bread, raise up, and give it to him. The disciple whom Jesus loved on Jesus' right and Judas on his left in the place of honor. Not only that, but the giving of bread like Jesus did in verse 26 was a symbol of love and affection. It's kind of like whenever you would visit your grandmother's and she's made a dessert and she says, hey, I put something special back for you. This is an act of special love. That's why they didn't suspect Judas. He had a place of honor. He was shown great affection by Jesus. There was no clear indication of evil. 
He wasn't wearing a black hat or a black robe. There was no identifying mark that would cause them to know quickly who the betrayer is. It's a reminder to us that when we talk about betraying Jesus, we aren't to look around and think, how could they do that? We aren't to think, oh, I, I, I don't think that's going to last. It's a call for us to look in our own hearts. It's reminiscent of what the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians when he said, Take heed, lest you fall. Alexander Solzhenitsyn is a survivor of the gulags under Stalin. He's best known for many of his works, particularly a life, a day in the life of Ivan Disovinovich. I'm not good with my Russian, so please forgive me. That recounts a day in the life in the gulag. Stoltenhausen won the Nobel Peace Prize. And in that speech, he made this statement about the nature of good and evil. He talks about this very thing that we have a tendency to look as evil is out there. Evil is lurking around us. The one who betrayed betray is around us. But he said these words, The line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. Each of us has the propensity to betray Jesus. None of us can sit back and say, that would never happen, I would never do that. Therefore, all of us must live lives humbly, praying that our hearts would be true to Jesus, praying that He would deliver us from evil, praying that our desires would always be upon Him. We must continually be on guard against the evil one. Look at what happens in verse 27. After Judas had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. That phrase entered into as one of possession. Judas was possessed by Satan himself at this moment. The temptations that have been laid before him are now given into so that Satan takes control. Now we must remember that this language is very strong. It does not absolve Judas of responsibility, but that reminds us that any act that seeks to harm Jesus or the church has as its origin Satan. Now we must remember that Judas was not a true believer. Even though he had seen the miracles, he had heard the teachings, he did not have faith in Jesus as a Messiah. Jesus said, remember, I've chosen 12 of you, but one of you is a devil. Satan is the adversary of God. He is the adversary of God's people. He is the thief that Jesus spoke of in John 10 where he said the thief comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. Now as Christians, we cannot be possessed by Satan or demons. We are filled with the Holy Spirit. Romans 6 says that sin will not have dominion over us. But that does not mean, however, that Satan will not tempt us to pull us away from God. Satan will tempt you and I. He will give prey, prey upon our desires that we would seek to betray Jesus to get what we want. You see, Judas had a motive. That motive is never explained in the Scripture. Never. Some feel like that Judas was trying to put Jesus into a situation where when armed soldiers appeared, Jesus would then act in a military way to become a military and political messiah. 
Some think that it was sheer greed, although 50, I'm sorry, although 30 pieces of silver is not a huge amount. We don't know his motives. But you can always trace motives to desires. There was something Judas wanted. And Satan used that to entice him. You see, it's our desires that will lead us away to betray Christ. When Peter denied Jesus, what did he desire? He desired security, safety. So he sought it in a way other than trusting God. The temptation that Satan will lay in front of us to betray Jesus will always revolve around your desires. You desire love and intimacy, he will tempt you to seek it in a way that is not honoring to God. You desire security, you desire stability, he will always tempt you to seek it in a way contrary to God. He will push you, tempt you, entice you and I to seek security and money and stuff rather than in the things of God. But ultimately, no matter how Satan tempts us, you and I are still responsible for our actions. Judas was not drugged, kicking and screaming to betray Jesus. He did so willingly. And that's exactly what the enemy preyed upon as he enters into Judas. We must be on guard against the evil one. Because he according to 2 Corinthians, can appear as even an angel of light. He can appear good. In 1876, there was an erosion problem taking place across the southeast part of the United States. Land was drying up and blowing away. And so there were plans were trying to be developed by the agriculture experts of that day and what to do. And one of them happened upon the perfect plan. There wasn't anything they needed to do except plant something. You see, there was this vine in Japan that if it was planted would grow quickly and spread widely so that any erosion would be halted. And so in 1876, kudzu was brought to the southeast part of the United States. The intent was good. But how much kudzu have we stripped away, burnt, and tried to get rid of because it grows? That is a picture of what Satan tries to do. He tries to take the things that are not of God and make them look like that's exactly what you want. And it never ends well. In fact, when Judas leaves the table, the people don't know why. They thought maybe he's going out to buy food for the feast or to get something from the poor. But look at verse 30. After receiving the morsel of bread, he went out. And it was night. Now that last phrase is more than just a, a chronological statement. He's not just saying the sun had gone down and there was darkness around. It is a theological statement. It looked like the enemy was victorious. It was night. Darkness. This is a theme that John has used all throughout his gospel. Darkness and light. To be with God is to be in the light. To follow Jesus is to be in the light. Otherwise, we are dwelling in darkness. And church, he has called us out of the darkness into the light. The Apostle Paul writes of this in 1 Thessalonians 5 when he says, But you are not in darkness, brothers. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of night or darkness. 
So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. To be sober is clear-minded, clear thinking. To have, have our, a right understanding of what is taking place around us through the lens of the Scripture and of God. For he, those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober. Let us be clear-headed. How do we do that? Listen carefully. Put on the breastplate of faith and love and the helmet for a helmet the hope of salvation he says you want to think clearly let your mind dwell on faith hope and love faith in Christ the hope that is in Christ and the love of Christ and that will guard our thinking in Christ Jesus so that we do not go the way of Judas now I wanted to give just three concluding statements to try to sum this up First is to remember this, God's plan encompasses evil. God is not the author of evil, but yet God works His plan even to incorporate the evil done by humanity to accomplish His purpose. Now that's hard to understand and I don't always see how it fits together neatly. I don't think it fits together neatly, but my faith is this, that what the world, what the evil one considers for harm, God intends for good. Remember what Judas' actions led to, the cross and the resurrection. Our redemption was brought about through a heinous act of evil, the betrayal. So it's a reminder to us that even in the pain we experience, God is at work and will work it for the good of those that love Him and are called according to His purpose. So remember this second thing. Not only will God's plan be done, the darkness is never final. The night that is spoken of here would come to an end. As the psalmist said, weeping may be endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning. John chapter 1 verse 5 he says the light shone in the darkness and the darkness could not overtake it in these days where we are hit with so much bad news and the temptation is very strong to become discouraged and even angry we must fight against that to know that the light of Jesus Christ will shine no matter how dark the world is it cannot stop it so rather than becoming discouraged, we must remind ourselves and remind one another of that truth. And then the third application I would give you is very personal. Guard your heart that you will walk in grace. Guard your heart. Be vigilant. Satan is like a roaring lion. He wants to eat you. Be on guard. In the highs of life, be on guard. In the lows of life, be on guard. Judas was confronted even with a choice. I've often wondered what emotions he felt when Jesus looked at him and said, what you're going to do, do it quickly. That's a choice before us. When that moment of temptation comes, we have a choice. Will we be true or will we give in? Things didn't end well for Judas. 
in remorse he took his own life. That does not have to be your story. No matter what struggles you've had, no matter how your steps may have faltered, there is grace, abundant grace. I want to ask you, if you will, to bow your heads with me. And I want us to take this moment to lay our hearts before God. In just a moment, we will sing. And although we're not giving a formal invitation, you still have an opportunity where you are to respond to the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God, like a surgeon, may be pointing out areas in your life that are wounded. They're wounded by sin. They're areas of your life where whether it be in small ways or big ways, you have compromised your faith. And like a surgeon, the Spirit wants to remove them. You cannot defeat sin with half measures. Today I ask you, if there is an area of compromise in your life, repent of that. An area where sin has a foothold, will you turn from it? If it is anger, give it to the Lord. If it is a wound that has been called by another person, a hurt that is, you have felt so deeply, you feel like it will never heal, I ask you this morning to trust the great physician. Prophet Amos asked, is there a balm in Gilead? Is there an ointment in Gilead? And the answer throughout the scripture is yes, and it is our Lord Jesus Christ. He heals the wounded heart. This morning, don't fight against him. But in a moment of candor, say, Lord, here I am, wounded and all. Grant me grace. Heavenly Father, every person in here, every person on this planet is in need of your grace. Father, we cannot heal ourselves. And Lord, we confess that our feet, our feet are quick to run away from you. Lord, be merciful to us and draw us back into yourself. Let us be found among those that are faithful, steadfast, abounding in your work. And Father, let us not give in to even small temptations. Lord, in all things, be glorified in our life. Let us walk with you. In the name of Jesus, amen.